God has a heart to see people come to Him, but He won't accept just anybody. Turn to Luke chapter 14. We like to think of God with open arms and ready to forgive, and we should think of Him like that, but I hope you recognize that He will not allow people to come to Him on their terms. And that's why I say He won't accept just anybody. He won't accept someone who will come only on their terms. They say, well, we'll come to you, but we're not going to come the way you want us to come to you. See, our God is ready to forgive, but He demands that we come to Him on His terms. They can't come to God on the basis of their own merits. They can't come to God on the basis of their pedigree. He will flatly reject them. Last week we saw that God is like the master of the banquet and He sent out personal invitations to the Jews to come to His exclusive dinner. But when it was time for dinner, only a few showed up. And so God opened up the invitation to Jewish outcasts, the lame, the blind, the poor. And the servant said, but still there's room. And so the master sent out his servant into the highways and hedges to compel whomever was willing to come that they would come. And this included even the Gentiles. And with this picture of how God calls people, we might think that God will accept people any way that they are. But if we think carefully about that analogy that Jesus used in chapter 14, we should see that many were rejected. In verse 24, it says, None of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. That is, the ones who were originally, originally invited. God flatly rejects people who come to Him on their terms. Jesus is going to show us tonight the nature of genuine discipleship. What does genuine discipleship look like? Because if we're going to come to Jesus, or if we've already chosen to do so, then we had better think very carefully about what it means to follow Him. The life of a Christian was never designed to be a luxury cruise in this lifetime. The life of a disciple is a life of preparation for war and engaging in war. Engaging in spiritual warfare. That's what the spiritual life is about. Preparing for war and engaging in war. No cruise in this lifetime. Nobody is whisked to the clouds on flowery beds of ease as we sing. Luke 14, verses 25 to 35 is our passage. I'll read it for us beginning in verse 25. This is the Word of God. Now large crowds were going along with Him, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after Me, cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if it has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for ter- terms of peace. 
So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even salt has become tasteless. If even salt has become tasteless, what, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Last week we saw that the banquet is open to all. The invitation has been expanded not just to the Jews, not just to the lowly Jews, but even to the Gentiles. So the banquet is open to all, but this week we're going to see that the banquet is not for everybody. And Jesus is going to answer the question, what does genuine discipleship look like? If you're going to follow Me, Jesus says, you're going to have to give up a few things. Notice at the end of verse 26, if He doesn't do these things, He cannot be My disciple. The end of verse 27, if He does not do this, He cannot be My disciple. Verse 33, so then none of you can be My disciple who does not give up all all His own possessions. Jesus is talking about genuine discipleship and He's calling for something very drastic. First of all, we see that genuine discipleship demands exclusivity to Christ. That means that we must follow Christ alone. Genuine discipleship demands exclusivity to Christ. Verses 25 and 26. Jesus has been talking about what is of greatest value in life and He's trying to show His listeners that a relationship with God has nothing to do with pedigree or education. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are or what education you have. Relationship with, with God or relationship with Christ is what is needed for real change. And he's saying here that if there is no real change, then there should be no assurance of salvation because my disciples will be changed. They will have counted the cost. They will, have, they will work for me. <clears throat> So genuine discipleship demands exclusivity to Christ. Notice the exclusivity of following Christ in verse 26. If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciples. If he does not hate... Okay, so Jesus is not calling here. I hope you recognize. He's not calling for you to hate your parents, children. If that were the case, a rebellious teenager would be the most pious of Christians. If you're struggling with what Jesus is saying here, I would encourage you to consider a similar teaching in Matthew 10.37. He says this, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So the idea here in verse 26 is that you should love Christ and be devoted to Him so much that your commitment and love for your closest family member looks like hate. Can you imagine that? The person that you love the most, you love Christ so much that it looks like you hate them. You can't love someone else more than you love Christ. That's what Jesus requires. And notice how serious... Jesus is about this. Look at the end of the verse. And even, if anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If you don't love Christ to the the degree that that, uh, it looks like hate,
to your closest family members and looks like hate to your own self, then notice the language that Jesus says. He's not mincing words here. He says, you cannot be My disciple. You can't follow Me. You're not one of My sheep. If you're going to be a genuine disciple of Christ, you must be willing to set aside even your closest relationship if that, that's what it means to follow Christ. Let me show you what that looks like. Turn back to verse 16. Verse 16. A man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent a slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything's ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I need to try them out. Consider me excused. Verse 20. Another one said, I married a wife. And for this reason, I cannot come. He goes on to talk about those who make excuses. And then look at verse 24, how Jesus sees these. For I tell you, none of those men who made excuses were invited, who were invited and made excuses shall taste of my dinner. Okay, so Jesus is saying, listen, this one guy, especially the, the one who says, I just got married. I'm going to go spend some time with my wife. I can't come after you. I can't come to the dinner. I'm sorry. Jesus says, then you can't have a part of the dinner at all. Turn back to chapter 9. It's not a surprise that we find excuses from people throughout the ministry of Christ because what He's calling for is a serious break in our former way of life and a complete commitment to following Him. Not a half-hearted commitment. As if we say, well, we'll see how it works out and Hopefully I can fit in Jesus for the rest of my life. No, Jesus is all of my life, right? And I'm going to get I'm I'm going to give him everything. Look at verse fifty seven, chapter nine, verse fifty seven, and they were going along the road and someone said, I will follow you wherever you go. See, I want to be a genuine disciple of you, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Verse fifty eight The foxes have holes and the birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you realize how difficult it is to follow me? I don't even have a pillow to lay on at night. I don't have a place to stay. Even the animals have that. I don't. Are you sure you want to follow me? Verse 59, And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me per, uh, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everyone everywhere the kingdom of God. Verse 61, Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. I will be your genu- genuine disciple. But first... Permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said, No one, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, genuine discipleship demands exclusivity to Christ. It means that we wholeheartedly give ourselves to following Christ. I'm not going to have anything come between me and my devotion to Christ. That's my greatest goal in life is to be devoted to Christ, to Follow Him. Demands exclusivity to Christ. Secondly, we see genuine discipleship demands personal sacrifice in verses 27-33. through Personal sacrifice. See, in verse 27, the principle, back in chapter 14, the principle of personal sacrifice, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not talking about physically giving up your body in death. He's not saying you need to die for him in order to pay for your sins. Right? His death has already affected God's 
positive disposition toward you. What he's talking about is serious personal commitment that takes into account what you have to give up in order to follow him. And in that accounting of what he demands, you need to recognize that you may die taking up the cross. That's the idea. The cross is not something that, that was a nice little thing to wear around your neck like we tend to use it. Okay? It was a symbol of execution. He's saying, take up that symbol of execution and follow me. Recognize your discipleship means giving up everything. Now, God may give us, have us give up our bodies for the sake of His fame being spread. Right? God does this. Can you think of anyone? Can you think of any example in the New Testament or otherwise? People who were called by God to give up their lives for the sake of His fame being spread. The very first one we think about is Stephen. The very first martyr of the Christian faith who gave up his life gladly for the sake of God's fame being spread. Of course, his death was likely a part of what brought Paul to Christ. All the apostles died, gave up their lives, were killed for the sake of the name. All of them, except for John, apparently. Jim Elliot, more recently, in the 1950s, and thousands of others since the time of the New Testament along with him, have given up their lives. And so God may want you to give your life up for the sake of God spreading His fame. But the main thing that we need to see is that following Jesus demands exclusivity and therefore we must sever any tie in this world that keeps us from following Him. It demands that we personally sacrifice. And so we look at this main principle in verse 27. Whoever does not carry his cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. And we ask, Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, Jesus gives us two metaphors to help us to understand. Help to illustrate the point. The first is the metaphor of a building. Verses 28-30, through the metaphor of a building or of a building project. And He basically says, don't be a person who starts a project but doesn't finish it. I'm a person that loves to start new things. And I love to finish things that have been started, but I hate the middle part. You know what I mean? Like a college class. I love, I truly love the first few weeks of college or any type of education class. I love those weeks, the newness of the material, the excitement of reading the material. And I also love turning in the final paper, finishing the final exams, finishing the last of the reading. But there are some days and weeks in the middle of that class that are difficult where I have to dig down deep to motivate myself. Like, what did I get myself into and I am never going to be able to finish this. You see, it's one thing to start something that you will actually finish, but it's another thing to start something that you don't finish. We were watching a house remodeling show uh, the other day where the realtors take a couple to a house and this house was just all drywall, uh, subfloor, and unfinished stairs, unfinished electrical, unfinished plumbing, no kitchen. And uh, the realtor told the couple that the previous owner started to remodel the house and then they ran out of money and decided to sell or got foreclosed on. I'm not sure which. But, but they ran out of money. They didn't finish the job. They had, it all started. Even some of the walls were painted. 
And I know dozens of students who didn't finish their college degree or who didn't finish their seminary degree. Perhaps you know of people who, who, who are the same or who didn't finish all the requirements for high school. Someone who's ready to graduate but skips the final exams. And you know what he should expect when he does that? A person who does that should expect ridicule because who starts something that serious and doesn't finish? Obviously, there are some extenuating circumstances. I recognize that. Uh, you know, someone gets uh, deathly ill or something like that. But, but Jesus is saying the main principle is when you start something, you should finish it. Look at verse 30. Otherwise, the end of verse 29, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So, so here's the, how the metaphor connects to what Jesus is teaching us. He expects for us to give up whatever is necessary in order to follow Him. Genuine discipleship requires personal sacrifice. And so we would be fools to look at what Christ is calling for, to, to, literally, to, to, to figuratively take up our cross and follow Him. If we haven't thought through that and what that means, we start down the path of discipleship and then give up. We should expect ridicule. Wow, that person didn't really think through what it meant to follow Christ. They hadn't finished. Instead, the point is not, you know, let's look, let's look for people who are like that. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. Instead, He's saying, you, each of us, we need to count the cost. We ought to take into consideration what Christ does require to follow Him. And I think even as Christians today, we need to take stock of what is it that Christ is calling me to do in discipleship. Is He saying just to kind of go with the flow and ride the waves on to eternity? Or is He saying that that it's going to require some sacrifice on our part and maybe I'm not giving as much as I ought to? And so the question we might ask is, can we afford to follow Jesus? Can we really afford to do it? And that's what you do when you set out to do a building project. Can I afford to do this? Am I going to be able to finish the job? The second metaphor is the metaphor of a battle in verses 31 and 32. If you're a king who has 10,000 troops ready for battle and you're going up a force that is twice your size, you had better look at other options. Right? That's, that's what verses 31 and 32. What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with his 10,000 men to encounter the one against him with 20,000. If you have a force that has twice as many troops as you do, you better think of another way to, to, to make this all go away. It would be like a football coach who is playing with only six guys against the other team who clearly is going to do the full 11. Okay, you better think of another way that you can get 11 people on the field or that you can somehow call a... Uh, some kind of a truce with the other coach or, or reschedule the date because 6 against 11 is not going to work. Just like 10,000 versus 20,000 is not going to work. Now this is a, a little bit more serious than the previous metaphor. The first metaphor is there's no opponent. It's you and your building project. What's the problem if you don't do the building project? Well, you just don't do it. This one is you have 10,000 troops. You have 20,000 troops that are opposing you and that is ready to attack. They are ready to attack. And now it's not, 
well, should you do the building project or not? Now it is, should, what can you do to, to, to reconcile in this battle? It's a heightened reality of the powerful opponent that we have. That the most powerful opponent that we face is not Satan. It is God. And the point is that we better reconcile with Him than have Him as our enemy. Look at verse 32. Or else, while the other, the king with 20,000, is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, if your 10,000, you and your 10,000 troops are going up against the king and his 20,000 troops, should you go ahead and try for the battle? Should you try to oppose him? Or should you accept his terms of peace? And the clear answer is let's reconcile. Okay? We're not going to win. This is us with God. Okay? It's not just that, okay, whether we do the building project or not. Now it is we're facing the wrath of God. We only have one choice. And the question no longer is, can we afford to follow Jesus? The question is this, can we afford not to follow Jesus? Because the alternative is to be under His wrath. Then Jesus restates the principle in verse 33. So then, none of you can be My disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So if you are that king that's going up against a force that's twice your size, should you not do everything in your power to make sure that you reconcile with that other king? And that means be willing to give up whatever is holding you back from making those terms of peace with Him. Our relationship with God is very much like a suzerain vassal treaty. In the ancient Near East, particularly in the Old Testament, they would have these kinds of covenants between a greater nation, the suzerain, and a lesser nation, the vassal. And the greater nation, the suzerain, would agree to provide protection and provision. And the lesser nation, the, the vassal, would, would agree to be at the mercy of the greater nation. And he would be willing, the lesser nation would be willing to do whatever the greater nation wanted so that the lesser nation, nation could survive. That means that the lesser nation would give taxes to that king and that he would pay homage to that king and that nation. Friends, we are like that vassal the lesser nation before God. We are deserving of the wrath of God as He comes with more troops than we can handle. And there is no other way for us to get out of it than to make peace with Him, than to come to Him on His terms. And the terms that Jesus is spelling out for us here is that we must be willing, verse 33, to give up everything in order to serve our great and loving Master. And unlike many of the suzerain nations in the ancient Near East, our suzerain, our greater power, offers us gracious terms and is willing to work for our sake. But the same thing is true with regard to those treaties in the Old Testament. That is, the alternative is death. Is that the greater nation comes and swallows up the lesser nation. And we will be swallowed up under the wrath of God if we are not willing to give it all up for the sake of following Christ. So Jesus says, count the cost. It's a big one. Can you afford to do it? And then He says with the, with the analogy of the battle, can you afford not to? Genuine discipleship 
demands exclusivity to Christ first. Secondly, it demands personal sacrifice. And then thirdly, here comes a really profound one. Genuine discipleship of Christ demands that we follow Christ. Okay, that's what discipleship means. That's why I say tongue-in-cheek. Very profound. Genuine discipleship of Christ demands that we actually follow Christ. That's what verses 34 and 35 are about. These verses, if you read them this week in preparation for tonight, maybe you're thinking about what does salt have to do with anything? The primary reason that we use salt is for getting rid of ice from our driveway and streets and for flavoring and a number of other Chemists use it for various purposes. But in the ancient Near East, flavoring was one of its many purposes. Before the advent of refrigeration, salt would be used for what? It was used for a preservative. It was used for fertilizer. It was used for a catalyst for fire. But what would it be used for if it didn't serve any of those functions that they needed it for? Okay, so look at the text here and we'll see what I'm talking about. Verse 34, Therefore, salt is good, and we would say yes, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned if it becomes useless? What are we going to do with it? Verse 35 tells us, It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, for you chemistry buffs out there, the the compound that is salt, sodium chloride, cannot deteriorate as long as it still remains in that compound, sodium chloride. But in the ancient Near East, salt was taken from mines and the Dead Sea, and it would often be impure. And if there was too much moisture, the salt would deteriorate into some kind of gypsum or minerals, and then it would be useless. And that's what, it, what Jesus is saying. What, what good is it? You can't even start a fire with it. You can't preserve anything with it. You can't use it for fertilizer. That's useless. If it doesn't serve the function for which it's made, verse 35, it's useless and it's thrown out. In other words, unsalty salt is no salt at all and should be discarded. I think the point of the salt metaphor is that genuine disciples of Christ must follow Christ. Salt is only useful when it is salty. And disciples are only useful to God when they are disciply. Okay? So they're only useful to God when we actually do the following. You see, if God sees a disciple who is not following, he, like the saltless salt, is good for nothing and should be thrown out, likely into what? Eternal condemnation because he never really was a disciple in the first place. And so here's the challenge for us. Look at the end of verse 35. He who has an ear, who has ears to hear, let him hear. Today, friends, if you hear the voice of God saying your life is looking pretty unsalty, then repent and be restored to God. If your spiritual ears perked up when you heard that disciples that don't follow Christ will be thrown out, then I would urge you to respond with repentance and obedience. Because the alternative is eternal condemnation. See, genuine discipleship is available to all who respond to the message, who say, yes, I will come on your terms. But genuine discipleship is not for everyone. It's not for the weak of heart. It's not for the faint. 
It's for those who are willing to give it all and depend on God and come to Him on His terms. This passage calls us to do two important things. Number one, this passage teaches us how to evangelize. It teaches us how to evangelize. I was startled, I think, a little bit as I was reminded of this passage and how stark the terms of evangelism are. What would you think of a traveling evangelist or a pastor who clearly shared the gospel, called people to repentance and faith, but then when someone came to him about getting saved, hey, I want to respond to that. The preacher said, you know what? Why don't you think about it and come back to me? I want to make sure that you know what you're doing. Or what if he said, why don't you read through Mark's gospel and get back to me with questions? Or what if he said, you, you might want to think more carefully about what you're about to do. This is not something that's small. What would you think of a preacher like that? We would say, well, he's not making it very easy to come to Jesus. I mean, he's presented the gospel. The person's come. It's like a gift in your lap. Just walk them, walk them through the sinner's prayer. What would we think of a preacher who turned him away and said, think about it more carefully and get back to me? And yet the truth is, is that Jesus wouldn't make a very good preacher by the standards of our day, would He? Jesus is not going to have an invitation at the end of His service. He's not even going to compel them to respond and twist their arm. He's not going to plead with them. He's not going to highlight all the great benefits and minimize all the challenges. Like, well, I don't want to talk to Him about all the persecution that will come Instead, I'll tell them about all the heaven and, and all the love and how all the problems are going to go away. Jesus doesn't give that kind of gospel, does He? He says, listen, it's going to be hard. He doesn't make it easy for people to get saved. Instead, He makes it hard. But the reason that we know that Jesus was the greatest evangelist is because He wasn't sharing the news of the Gospel in order to get plastic confessions. He was preaching with a view towards genuine conversions. And if these people came to Him and said, hey, hey, let me go do a few things and I'll come back and follow you, He says, no. You can't follow Me. Because you're not willing to give it all up. He was looking for genuine conversions. And He knew that genuine conversions came when someone actually recognized the great cost, the exclusivity of following Christ, the personal sacrifice, the need for actually following Him. And so He made it hard for people to come to Him. And the reason for that is Jesus is not looking for half-hearted followers when it comes to converts. Because He knows that those who start down the path they like that building project. They start down the path and then they realize, wow, that's a little bit harder than I wanted. And they turn away. Are going to be discarded like the saltless salt. They're going to be ridiculed like the person who started the building project and never finished. Jesus knows the great cost of it. And He doesn't want to lead anyone on falsely to think, hey, this is going to be easy. Now, obviously we need to keep that in view with what Jesus said in another passage in Matthew that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But, but we need to consider that in terms of the fact that he's, there's still a yoke, right? And there's still a burden. It's light in comparison to what we would have to carry on our own, 
right? The, this is the, uh, the analogy of the battle. In terms of the alternative that the king is going to come and destroy us, hey, our, this is a great thing to take up our cross. It's great to follow Christ. It's great to personally sacrifice for Him. It's great to give up everything. And that's why Jesus says it is easy and light. But it still works. It still requires great effort on our part. No one can avoid persecution and trouble and enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. This passage teaches us how to evangelize and sometimes we need to throw out our models of evangelism that says, hey, let's get them with the hook, bring them in, and reel them all the way into the boat. No. We need to tell them the gospel, show them how hard it is to follow Christ, and then let God do the work. He'll bring in the sheep that are of His fold. Why? Because Jesus says, My sheep, they know My voice and they will follow Me. And so we tell them the message. Certainly we remove obstacles. Okay, we've been talking about that in Sunday school. We remove obstacles so that they can see the truth and the glory of the Gospel. But we don't make it easy. That's, there's a, obviously a, an idea out there called easy believism where we just kind of give them this really watered-down, milk-toast version of the Gospel. And they can just accept that, all the good benefits of it. Then we got them. And, uh, and then, you know, they'll find about the trouble and the persecution later. And th- that's not the Gospel. Okay? That's a manipulation in order to, to uh, boost our sales numbers. And we did a good job getting the Gospel out there because look at all these professions of Christ we made, we, we got out of people. Right, really, it's just a manipulation tactic in order to, to, um, to boost our own egos. And ultimately, it doesn't help the work of Christ and it doesn't help that person, does it? Because it actually gives them a false assurance of their own salvation because we said, if you pray a prayer, then you are saved. And Jesus says, no, you're not. You, you, you don't just pray a prayer. Lots of people prayed a prayer. They said, Lord, Lord, did I not do all these things in Your name? Did I not pray a prayer in Your name? And He says, get out of here. I don't know you. You want to be a true disciple? You don't pray a prayer. You come and give your whole life to Me. You follow Me completely. You make Me your Master. That's true discipleship. And that's how evangelism goes against the grain of, of how we tend to think. Secondly, This passage calls us to evaluate our own lives. It causes us to evaluate our own lives. If God is ready to, like in verse 35, discard the unsalty professing Christians, if He is quick to do that, then we would do well to evaluate our own hearts to see if we are in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both the will and the work of His good pleasure. Christians, have we counted the cost? Have we looked at the end game and decided whether we made the right choice? Let me ask you this. Can, can you afford to follow Christ with the great cost that Christ demands of exclusivity to, to love Him more than your closest family member. Love Him more than any other object in this world. 
and the great cost of personal sacrifice and actually having to do it to follow Him. Because God demands that. He demands exclusivity, personal sacrifice, and genuine following. And maybe now that you've been a Christian for a while, you've gotten deep into the challenge of the Christian life, you've realized that you may have bitten off a little more than you can chew, I would encourage you tonight to evaluate yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because following Christ will result in persecution. Following Christ will bring about ridicule from some of your closest friends. Following Christ may include abandonment from your closest family member. Following Christ may include physical body, uh, physical blood being shed, and maybe it may require you to give up your own life. Paul said it this way, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 And Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. John 15.20 Don't misunderstand me. I'm not here to compel you to walk away. I simply want you to know that it is no small thing to be a part of the Lord's army. Following Christ means that you will fall into the hands of angry people. And so you need to answer the question for yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow follow Christ and as a result fall into the hands of angry people? If you can't handle that, if you can't handle the battle of spiritual warfare, if you can't handle this building project that God is doing, is demanded of every believer, then turn back now. But I can assure you that there is something far more fearful than falling into the hands of angry people, and that is falling into the hands of an angry God. And so the question is not just, is it worth it to follow Christ? The question is, is it worth it to neglect following Christ? If you give up and you're unwilling to persevere, you can be sure that you will stand before and under the wrath of God. And so you need to answer this question as well. Not just, is it worth it to follow Christ, but is it worth it to turn your back on the fight? Because the only alternative is like the king with the 10,000 troops. The only alternative is to be swallowed up under the wrath of the other king's judgment. Salty discipleship means putting God first. It means putting Jesus first. It means even though my world and my flesh are telling me that I should disobey God, I know that defying God is to to deteriorate into unsaltiness, which will eventually lead to me being thrown out. If you're not finding out what the will of the Lord is by searching His Word, Ephesians 5.17, if you're not doing the will of the Lord, you are not a disciple of Jesus. It doesn't matter if you promised to come to Christ. If you're not following Christ, you are not doing the will of the Father. And Jesus is clear that those who are not doing the will of the Father will not receive the kingdom of God. Again, the parable of the two sons that I brought up Uh, in in the previous messages here in Luke. The two sons. The one promised his father that he would come and help in the vineyard. And then he didn't. He was not doing the will of his father. Okay, so, so it's more than just us saying at one point in our life, yes, I will be a disciple. 
It's actually being a disciple. It's actually showing that, hey, we have been changed. We were serious about that commitment. We're going to follow through on that commitment by the Lord's help. Only those who do the Father's will are His genuine disciples. And I have several verses that support this point, but let me just give you one. Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of My Father who is in heaven will enter. So, if we're not disciply disciples, like the salty salt, then we're not going to enter the kingdom of God. How can you afford to follow Christ with all that is demanded of Christ to be a genuine disciple? That is a serious question that you and I need to answer for ourselves. But an even more serious question is this. How can we afford not to follow Him? God's wrath is approaching like a nation with twice as many soldiers and we need to make a choice. What options do we have? What will we be willing to do in order to survive that king? You know what He offers for us? He doesn't just offer the wrath, the guaranteed wrath, does He? He offers us the peaceful terms. Say, hey, you can come to Me, but you've got to do it on My terms. I'm the King. I'm the Master. And so why would we not be willing to give up whatever relationships? You know, we sing the song, sever any tie that binds. Save the tie that binds Me to your heart. Whatever it is in this world that's keeping me from following you fully, cut it off. Jesus said as much, right? It would be better to have your arm cut off that's causing you to sin than to enter into eternity, the eternal hell, with all of your body parts. Right? So whatever's keeping you from giving yourself fully to following Christ, then you need to be willing to cut it off for the sake of Christ and follow Him. That's the kind of disciples that God is looking for. And I think it's helpful for us to just reevaluate our, ourselves, our own lives, and say, okay, I've made this choice. I've been going down this path. What's the end going to look like? It, it could get worse before it gets better. But we're confident that it will get better in the next life because we know that our Savior will win and that He will make right all the wrongs that have been done to us and to all other of the saints in history and we will know that Christ and we know that Christ will have us at his banquet. The banquet is open to all, but it's not for everybody. We need to be willing to follow him at any cost. Let's pray. Father, this passage is an easy one to point the finger at someone else and think Yes, they need to hear this. But Lord, this passage is for each one of us. This passage is for me. I need to count the cost. Each person here needs to count the cost and recognize the great weight of following You, the great need to count the cost, recognize the seriousness of going up against Your wrath and losing. Lord, what a better thing can we say about our lives than that we have been gripped by the the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you, although you uh, had every right to come to us with your great wrath and pour it out on us like a cup overflowing, 
we should be drowned in Your wrath, but instead You have offered us peace and rescue, shelter from Your wrath through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's why we glory in our salvation. That's why we are willing to give up whatever is necessary. That's why we're willing to commit ourselves to You. That's why we're willing to do Your desires. We know that those only those who do the will of You will enter the kingdom of God. And so we're willing to, to give up all of the, the longings for the sins of this world, to turn away from those things and to be given to full obedience to our Savior, to You. Lord, help us. It's not easy. We often have setbacks. We often get our eyes fixed off of the eternal things, the things which will last. And we get our eyes fixed on the things of this world and and forget how important it is for us to be salty disciples. Lord, we don't want to be thrown out with the rest who have started the project and then gave up halfway through. We want to be those who finish because of the work that the Spirit does in us. So Lord, do the work in us that we can't do in ourselves and we will give You the praise. And as You do that, Lord, may we be complicit with Your Spirit and not not pass the blame when we fail, but to take responsibility for ourselves and say like we sang earlier, we are ashamed. Please forgive us, Lord. Lord, help us to be better disciples of You even tonight and this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.